0: Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. Lord, we also thank you for the hope that we have for the resurrection. Of the living and the dead, where we will be raised with our glorified bodies, living in your presence forever, where death and sin will be no more. And every tear will be wiped away. And faith is no longer required because we will be with you and you will be with us. And we thank you for that hope that we have, Lord. And I pray that as sons and daughters, Lord, that we would cling to that hope even in the midst of despair, in the midst of difficulty. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would just move, that you would open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our mind, that as we continue in our worship by opening up uh, the Word, that you would stir inside of us our hearts and our affections, convict us, reveal truth to us. As we see the gospel being proclaimed in the book of Nahum, Lord, may we see that gospel being proclaimed to us as your herald have come and proclaimed peace and made peace between us and you, Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. May your name be glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Nahum, um, but also a few announcements that I have before we get into to the Word. Um, just mark your calendar. So as we're kind of in the middle uh, of summer, we're trying to get these dates out because we know that our fall calendar uh, fills up fast with all of the commitments. Um, but the first thing to mark on your calendar is um, August 22nd um, is going to be our next member gathering, and that's going to be on a Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. Um, and that's a time for us as as the church, as the family, to come together uh, to reflect on all that God has done, to celebrate all that God has done, and then even talk about the future, some future plans uh, that we have for the upcoming fall. When it comes to discipleship, we'll introduce uh, some of our life group leaders, so if you're not on a life group, that's a great opportunity uh, to meet them and get to know them, as we'll also um, introduce more covenant members and commission them uh, to the ministry, and then also uh, mark your calendar in your bulletin as more details about this, um, but August 25th, it's a, uh, on a Wednesday at 7 o'clock, that's one of our first core classes that we are launching, and so core classes are really fundamental classes that we believe every Christian should have, and it's three classes, uh, the first one is the Christian story, the second one is Christian beliefs, and the third one is, is Christian formation, and so August 25th, we're launch, launching uh, the Christian story, and basically, it's not a survey of the Bible, but Rather, it is showing you the ultimate story in Scripture. Because for many of us, we kind of read the Bible and there's all of these stories. And sometimes we, we, we see these stories as a series of disconnected stories. And we're trying to put a puzzle together and we don't know where the pieces uh, kind of fit. And really what this class is trying to show you is it's tr- showing you the picture on the box. Because you can't build a puzzle without looking at the picture on the box. And so we're trying to show you, here's the picture on the box. Here's the picture of the Bible. So that you'll be able to put all these pieces together, and that's going to be on Wednesdays. It's a class for th- over the course of 13 weeks at 7 o'clock. care will be provided, but we need you to sign up because we need to find out how many, uh, ch- how much care we need to provide, um, and then also how many books to print. And you can find, um, read all of that information in your bulletin, and then you can also sign up on our website for that but mark your calendar that's going to be um, August 25th let's get into the word so we're um, in Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 and so we are in our third week of our series uh, through the book of Nahum and so so my hope for us in Nahum as we tackle it we've already kind of discovered that Nahum is a book of comfort and also a book of devastation and and so my hope is that as we uh, read about the the goodness of God the whole holiness of God, the patience and the power and the justice of our living God in our text that will provide us comfort knowing that evil will not prevail but that God is going to take every wrong in the world and make it right. But then also on the flip side as we've read in the text it's also a book of devastation which shows us the reality and the devastating effects of the judgment of God and in a sense that not only will it provide us comfort but it will also, in a sense, devastate us and force us to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and look to Jesus Christ. And so last week in the beginning of the oracle, like, like Nahum didn't waste any time. He got to the heart of the issue, describing to us the devastation, showing to us that the Lord is angry. He is not Please, and so he gave us five declarations of the Lord. And so last week we learned about the Lord being a jealous God and a venging God, and yet He is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord is good. And so this message of divine judgment towards the Ninevites is just terrible news. It's horrific news. It's devastating news. However. For the people of God, for those in Judah who are being oppressed by the Assyrians, it provides comfort, knowing that their oppressors will no longer oppress and enslave them. And so in our text today, the good news is today we're going to focus on the comforting part. Last week we focused on the devastating part and I'm surprised some of you came back. Today we're going to focus kind of on the comforting part, showing us the, 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 uh, showing us the comfort that this books provide when the Lord decrees His judgment. So let's look at verse uh, 7 again. It says this, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold and a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him, verse 8. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. So, so verse 7 is almost like a transitional verse. It talked about the declarations of the Lord, and the last declaration is the Lord is good. In other words, the point is God is not evil. God is good. And the goodness of God has been declared throughout Scripture, even from the very beginning of Scripture. When God created everything, it was declared as good. And so in our text, God's goodness is declared in two ways. Another, or maybe another way of saying it is, how do I know that the Lord is good? Well, look at verse 7 again. How do I know the Lord is good? Because if you're taking notes, He is a stronghold in a day of distress. So the Lord is a stronghold in a day of distress. Or so another way of saying it is, He is a mighty fortress in a day of trouble. And so when trouble comes, who is He? A stronghold, a mighty fortress for which we can run to and find refuge. And this theme throughout is, is talked throughout Scripture. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, All who take refuge in Him are happy. Psalm 9 verse 9 says, The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge for times of trouble. So, so in other words, what, what Name is telling the people is, God is good and we can run for refuge from our oppressors. And the Lord actually wants us to to run to Him. And so whenever you find yourself in a day of distress, whenever you find yourself in a difficult situation, surrounded by trouble, we know that the Lord is good. And we can run to Him because He is our stronghold. He is our mighty fortress in a day of trouble. But here's the question. Okay. He's good. He's a stronghold in a day of trouble. How do I know he will accept me and not turn me away? Well, good question. Look at the second part of verse 7. Here's the second declaration of the Lord being good. Not only is he a stronghold in a day of distress, but the second part, if you're taking notes, is he cares for those who take refuge in him. He cares for those who take refuge in him. In other words... God will not turn you away when you seek refuge in Him. Why? Because He cares for you. But just let that truth, let that weight just set in. The Lord is good. And when I find myself in a difficult situation, when I find myself surrounded by trouble, how do I know He's good? Because he is a stronghold. He is a mighty fortress in a day of distress. And when I run to him and find refuge in him, he will not turn me away. Why? Because he cares for me. And so these words in verse 7 is just just a, a welcoming reminder of the unchanging goodness of the Lord, even during horrific judgment. But notice the sharp contrast between the relationship with God in verse 7 and the relationship with God in verse 8. So not only is he good, not only is he a stronghold in the day of trouble and he cares for those who take refuge in him. Look at the opposite in verse 8. But what will he do? He will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood and he will chase his enemies into darkness. So he's almost describing the contrast uh, relationship you can have with God. He's either a trust where you find refuge in him or he is opposed and he pursues those who oppose him. Like there is no middle ground when it comes to God. You're either trusting in him, finding refuge in him, and he cares for you. Or you oppose him and he pursues you and he will destroy you. I think we always think about the Lord pursued as always pursuing, to, uh, pursuing his people. But the Lord also pursues his enemies. And he will completely destroy those who oppose him. And so there's no middle ground when it comes to the Lord. There's no indifference. You're either trusting in him or you're opposing him. There's no neutral ground when it comes to it. And so it's comforting for the people of God knowing that in a time of distress, I can find refuge in him. He cares for me, but it's also a warning for his enemies that if you oppose him, he will pursue you and he will completely destroy you. And so in our text, he he says he is going to completely destroy Nineveh. And so he uses, so Nahum is going to use five metaphors to describe the complete destruction of Nineveh. The very first uh, a metaphor he uses, he says, but he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. How's he going to destroy Nineveh? Completely with an overwhelming flood. It's like the... Uh, the um, the floods in Europe, just this river that is just destroying everything in its past. And just when you think, well, is it going to be complete? He's, he uses the second metaphor. Not only is it going to be completely destroyed by, by an overwhelming flood, but the second part in verse 8, he says he will chase his enemies into darkness. In other words, he will never stop pursuing them into utter darkness where there is no light. It's not a, well, I'll just leave him alone. It is an utter darkness darkness. And then verses 9 through 11, he continues with his metaphors. He says in verse 9, whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time, for they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like the straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. So, so notice the third and the fourth and the fifth metaphor. They will be consumed like entangled thorns. Like the drink of a drunkard who drinks every little drop. Like the straw that is fully dried up, that is consumed by fire. And it's almost this idea, just when you start to doubt the complete destruction of the Lord, and you say in a sense, well, you know, maybe an overwhelming flood, there, there might be a little tree left. Says, no, he will even chase in complete darkness. Well, maybe in the complete darkness there might be a little light. And he says, no, it will be consumed like entangled thorns. There's no way out of it. Well, maybe he can escape a little bit. No, it's like the last drop of a drunkard's wine. Well, maybe there's a tiny little drop left. No, it will be like straw that is dried up and consumed by fire. In other words, every little... Hint that could possibly say, well, maybe they won't be complete destruction. He uses these metaphors and say, listen to me, it will be complete. Now, in our text, the message comes during the reign of King Usher Benapal, which during the, that time of Assyria, that kingdom was its largest and its strongest in military might. And so it's easy for the readers of Nahum to kind of read and to have all of this doubt. Because how in the world is there going to be a complete destruction of a world empire? They're the largest and they're the strongest and the most united they've ever been. And it says this could not happen. And yet Nahum is saying it is going to happen. And this accusation from Nahum accuses, uh, uh, look at verse 11. He accuses uh, the the one that is plotting against the Lord. Verse 11 says, this one has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord, and he is a a wicked counselor. In other words, whatever imperial ambition the Assyrians had for Judah, they were plotting against the Lord and not merely against the people. Now, now, I love the, the, what, what really is happening is because this, accu- this, this accusation from Nahum that they're plotting against the Lord, in reality, they're actually plotting against the people. But I love how the Lord identifies with his people. And we see this uh, even in Psalm 2, verse 1 to 2, ask this question. Why do the nations rage, the people plot in vain, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one? In other words, what Nahum is saying is these kings are never going to secede because even though they might be technically plotting against Judah and wanting to destroy Judah, the reality of it is that they're actually plotting against the Lord. And even though Judah is small and insignificant compared to the Assyrian Empire, God will protect his people. They will not be able to prevail against a superpower because they're not plotting against Judah as much as they're plotting against the Lord. And so I think here's one of the first truths that can be very comforting for us, if you're taking notes, is this, is to oppose God's people is to oppose God himself. To oppose God's people is to oppose God himself. In other words, The Lord identifies with His people. And because the Lord identifies with His people, what is the Lord going to do? He will protect His people. He will provide for His people. If the Lord sees His enemies as who is opposing His people as opposing Himself, why would the Lord not protect His people by protecting Himself? Why would the Lord not defend His people as He defends Himself? And, And we see this idea not just in the Old Testament, but we also see this idea in the New Testament where the Lord identifies with his people. Uh, When Saul was persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, and Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus tell Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, you're at war against me when you're at war against my people. And what that means for us is that the Lord will protect us. What that means for us, the enemies that are opposing us are ultimately the enemies of God that is opposing God. And that God is faithful to protect and defend his people. So so when we find ourselves even today where uh, in the 1040 window there's definitely persecution going on and we find ourselves where maybe whispers or hints of a little bit of persecution is going on, we can take comfort. Why? Because God identifies with His people. If they're opposing us, they're ultimately opposing God. And who's going to prevail against the Lord? No one. And so this can provide comfort for us as the Lord's people. And then the Lord further affirms the promise of his protection uh, for his people in verses 12 to 13. He says this, verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer, for I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. And so this address in verses 12 to 13 is even more forceful because it comes directly from the mouth of God. Like, Notice in the beginning how Nahum was speaking indirectly to the Ninevites and using the pronouns they and them. And now in verse 13, uh, verses 12 and verse 13, God is directly speaking and he's using the personal pronoun, Nineveh, you. And so what's happening is, is in other words, Lord is serious about speaking against these Assyrians. And in a sense, he's saying, you might be big, you might be strong, but you're going to be mowed down like grass. Like, like think about it in our day, a zero turn, just whizzing through a field, just mowing down the mighty grass. This is what the Lord is going to do to the Assyrians. They might be thick, they might be tall, but the Lord is just going to whiz through them like a zero turn over this grass. And he will mow them completely down. And it says, don't be fooled by the greatness of the Assyrians because the Lord will wipe them out sooner than what you think. Just when you think the oppressors are too big or, or the problem is too hard to overcome, God can bring them down in a moment. And then he, he says in uh, the second part in, in verse 12, he, the Lord admits, he says, though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. As he's addressing his people, he says, Though I have afflicted you, I have punished you because of your disobedience and because of your sin, and the means of that punishment has been the Assyrians, that punishment, that affliction will come to an end. And we know this concept being taught in Scripture, that the Lord disciplines his people. And why does he discipline his people? Because he loves his people. The Lord cares for those he disciplines. And we even read that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 to 7. And it says this, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are approved by them. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves, and He punishes every son He receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? God does not change. Change. And he still disciplines his children. And even though he admits to the people of Judah, I have afflicted you, I have disciplined you because of your disobedience by using the Assyrians to punish you, that will come to an end. But verse 13 is very important. It says this, For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. What kind of language is this? Think about this. It's this language of redemption. Even though I have afflicted you because of your sin, I will afflict you no more. And I, what I will do, I will break off the yoke, I will tear off your shackles, I will completely set you free. Now, one of the things when it comes to understanding the prophets, it's, it's always hard to kind of discern uh, wh- wh- what's the prophet talking about. Like how far in the future is he talking about? Is he talking about the immediate future? Is he talking about the distant future? And, and sometimes we find ourselves having to pick one or the other. Uh, but I even sometimes think sometimes it could be both. So, for example, Nahum is talking to Judah, saying he's going to completely destroy the Assyrians. And he will set the people free. And this is in the, the near future that it's going to happen. But I also think verses 12 and verses 13 is not just talking about the near future, but is also talking about the distant future. And so I think verses 12, verse 13 has really significant theological uh, promises. And Palmer Robertson, he says this. He says, possibly... The prophet could view Nineveh as a typical representation of Israel's arch enemy. So, not just literally Nineveh, but also a picture of God's people's enemy and her destruction as a symbolic of God's final act of judgment. Whoever might prove to be the archenemy of God's people in the future generation could be sure from Nineveh's experience that God would destroy them and deliver His people. God remains vitally concerned for His people and all their afflictions, and when the right time comes for their deliverance, He shall break them free from all oppression. In other words, here's my point. When, when you read verse 12 and verse 13, it has this redemptive language, which here's a truth that we can learn from Nahum if you're taking notes. Not only does the Lord identify with his people, but the Lord is also a redeemer of his people. Here's his people who are under the oppression of the Assyrian Empire. They are being enslaved, they're being oppressed by them. And what does God promise? I will set you free. I will break that yoke from your neck. I will take the chains and tear it off your hands and your feet. And it's also just talking about Nineveh, but also in the future, and we'll get to, about, uh, to it in a little bit. And, and here's the reality. There, there's no greater freedom than the freedom from the shackles of slavery and oppression. There's no greater freedom... Then the freedom from the slavery of sin and unrighteousness. The Lord redeems His people. This is redemptive language, and so I almost want you to see as the arch enemy is not just Nineveh, but Nineveh almost represents the ultimate arch enemy of God's people. And what is the ultimate arch enemy of God's people? Satan and sin. And so when the Lord says, "I will break off that yoke." I will break the chains, tear off the shackles from you. He's talking more than just about Nineveh. But he's also talking about the future, about how he's going to do it when he destroys our enemy called sin. And so this message of divine judgment narrows now from the empire to where now the Lord directs his attention to the ruler, to the king of Assyria, in verse fourteen. Now look at this. He says, "The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you. Are contemptible." In other words, not only does God hold the nation accountable, but who is He also holding accountable? The leader of that nation. In other words, God has given an order. The end is going to come for the Assyrian monarchy. The decree is irreversible and will surely come to pass. Now, we know the end of the story. And so the Assyrian empire plunged into chaos after the assassination of King Ashur Ashurbanipal. And even though at that time the empire was the strongest and the largest, when he was killed, Ashurbanipal, the entire empire plunged into chaos. And it didn't take very long for that empire to completely collapse in the rise of the Babylonians. And so here we see the Lord's word fulfilled. But look at verse 15, and then we're going to wrap it up with our application. Look at verse 15. It says this. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Now, verse 15 is the climax of the entire chapter one. And normally in Hebrew literature, the climax is what? Is normally the very first sentence. Here is the good news. What's the good news? Your enemy will be completely destroyed. You will be redeemed. You will be set free from the yoke, the shackles that have enslaved you. And what I want you to do as a result of this good news is to celebrate your festivities. Fulfill your vows. A herald is coming on the mountains. Bringing good news. In other words, here you have a preacher who's bringing good news and he's standing on the mountains. Why? So that he can reach his audience far and wide. And, and this imagery has been used throughout scripture. We see this imagery even Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Even Paul would quote Nahum and Isaiah in Romans 10 verse 15. And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the Lord is comforting his people through the prophet of Nahum. Saying to them, the Lord is good. You can find refuge in him in days of trouble. He's your stronghold, he's your fortress and he cares for you. And peace is coming. And how do you know peace is coming? Because the Lord identifies with his people. To oppose God's people, to oppose you, is to oppose God himself. And the Lord is the redeemer of his people. And Here's the third thing if you're taking notes. This is what he wants his people to do. There is peace. And now it's time to Rejoice. The herald has come, and he's brought the message of peace. And not only does it indicate the ending of hostility from their enemies, but it also affirms peace with God. They will no longer be afflicted. Why? Because the Lord has disciplined them, and he's bringing peace as he's setting his people free. Now, I find it very interesting When Nahum wrote down this oracle from the Lord, and his readers read it, in the beginning, the readers would say, Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. The Assyrians are too big, they're too strong. And yet, the language that Nahum is using is saying, This is imminent, this is as good as done. And then he gives them almost a command, a response to this news, saying this news is good. And what should be their response? Rejoice. Celebrate your festivities. Fulfill your vows. Now, when, he, they, when they receive that command, has the Lord already set them free? No, he hasn't. And you almost see the already And yet the not yet. The already and I said God said it. And when God says it, it is as good as done. But it's not yet. And so they're rejoicing. They're celebrating their festivities and fulfilling their vows in a sense in faith. Knowing what? The Lord is going to redeem his people. The Lord is going to protect his people peace is going to come and right now it is time to rejoice and here is uh, their assurance and their security here's the reason why they can do it the second part of verse 15 for the wicked one will never again march through you he will be entirely wiped out not only is there assurance that the enemy will be destroyed but there's also security. Can he make a comeback? Can he retaliate? And the answer is no. Now, now, now let's wrap it up with application here. What does it have to do with our lives? Well, when we read the Bible, one of the most important questions, and this is what we want to teach you in the Christian story, is how does this text point me to Jesus. Like, how do I see the gospel in this text? So, in other words, in this, in this chapter 1, that is a chapter of, of judgment, destruction, of redemption and celebration. How do we see the gospel in Nahum? In other words, how is Nahum's good news to his people connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well... Nahum's message proclaims the salvation of God's people from the oppression of the brutal enemy named Assyria. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims the salvation from the brutal brutal enemy and the brutal oppression of sin through the suffering of Jesus Christ. Both texts teaches us that the Lord saves Sinners. Why did the Lord afflict Judah? Because they've sinned. Why are the Lord saving them? Because they've sinned. Why did the Lord save us? Because we have sinned. Both teaches us this truth. The Lord saves sinners. And Nahum's good news is ultimately pointing us to the final redemption of God's people from sin once and for all. So let me run through the text and, and show you the gospel in it. Sin is our ultimate enemy. So even for the people of Judah, Assyria was their enemy, but sin was their ultimate enemy. And, and sin lures us in with this promise of, of pleasure, fulfillment, meaning, satisfaction, power, autonomy, comfort and the list can just go on. That's that's how sin lures you in and say just do it, treat yourself. You deserve it. You earned it. You'll be so happy. You'll find mean, you'll find satisfaction. And so it lures us in, and as it lures us in, it enslaves us. And this is how it enslaves us. This is how sin oppresses us. It oppresses us with guilt, It oppresses us with shame, and it oppresses us with condemnation. Now we can't escape. Why? Because we're stuck with the guilt. We're stuck with the shame. We feel condemned. And when people are enslaved to sin, and they're dealing with the weight of guilt and shame, how do they try to get out of it? self justification In a sense, they're they're trying to kind of wiggle themselves out, and yet what do they constantly feel in life? More guilt, more shame, more condemnation. Here is why I think this is our greatest enemy, is the oppression of sin, and we see the realities that even today. What is like one of the greatest pandemic past the COVID that all of a sudden we're experiencing? Mental health. And part of mental health is that struggle of dealing with guilt and shame. This idea of, I'm not good enough. I'm not measuring up. This idea of trying to find satisfaction. And as you're trying to pursue it, you always find yourself falling short, feeling more guilty, more shame. And you find yourself in isolation and hiding. And this is what sin does. It locks you up in a jail cell, and you're trying to get out of that jail cell, and there's no way of getting out. And even though the Lord has afflicted us by allowing for us to be oppressed by sin, and the reason why he did it is why? So that we can see the empty promises of sin. Anybody experience the empty promises of sin? Anybody bought into the lie of sin and then you committed it and what did you feel? Empty. The Lord afflicted us with the oppression of sin by allowing it for not just for us to see the empty promises of it, but also for us to feel the weight of that guilt and that shame and that condemnation. And just in the text of Nahum and throughout Scripture, the Lord has issued a decree that sin will be completely destroyed. And this news might seem unbelievable to you. Why? Because it seems like sin is at its strongest and its its highest. People are more deceived than ever before. We're living under the oppression of sin. You're thinking, I just don't see that happening. But a herald has come and stood on the mountains and declared the good news and so when we look to the mountain Mount Calvary we see the herald Jesus Christ declaring good news and how does he declare good news by dying on the cross for our sins by declaring peace with God peace with ourselves peace with one another from our oppressor called sin. And so think about all that happened at the cross. When Jesus died in our place on the cross, the very first thing he did was satisfy the wrath of God, paid the penalty on our behalf, faced all the judgment we should have faced because we have opposed God. And by him doing that, He declared peace with God. But that's not the only thing he did. When Jesus died in our place, not only did he satisfy the wrath of God, declared peace between us and God, but he took care of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. And he took it upon himself so that we can have peace with self and peace with one another. But but that's not all. When he died in our place, he also set us free from the bondages of sin. The yoke of sin has been broken. The shackles of sin has been taken off. And so we've been set free from the penalty of sin and we've been set free from the power of sin. And we know the work is not over because we're looking to the future when Jesus is going to come back and completely destroy the very presence of sin. And since peace has been proclaimed on the mountains by the heralds through the cross of Christ, what's our instructions? What did Nahum tell the people? He said what? Do what? Celebrate your festivities. Fulfill your vows. So even though we've been set free from the the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we see the presence of sin. We see the already and the not yet. And yet, what is our command? To do what? To celebrate our festivities. And what's our festivity that we celebrate? The Lord's Supper. What is our vows that we fulfill? We walk in obedience by faith as we surrender. And what's the assurance that we have as we celebrate the festivities, as we walk by faith and obedience and surrender? What does verse 15b say? Our enemy will be completely wiped out. So in a sense, when we come and we celebrate, we're celebrating it by faith. Believing the word of God that our enemy will be completely destroyed as we celebrate, as we fulfill our vows. And so as we we get to the table, what does this table remind us of? The table reminds us of God's faithfulness. The table reminds us of a time where there's going to be a table in the new heaven and the new earth and the presence of sin will be no more. It is a shadow of what is to come. And at this table, we are reminded of how our herald came to proclaim peace, and he proclaimed peace through his body that was broken for us, through his blood that was shed for us, and the new covenant that we have. And it provides us comfort. Why? Because the Lord identifies with his people He is our refuge in times of trouble. He cares for us when we take refuge in him. He redeems us. And he will wipe our enemy out once and for all. And this is why we come. This is why we celebrate. This is what we remind ourselves of. Our enemy will one day be no more. So when you find yourself frustrated in your struggle against sin... What do you do? You don't try harder. You don't give up. You come to the table. You're reminded of the promise. Sin will be no more. You celebrate what the Lord has done for you. You walk in faith and obedience and surrender. Let me pray for us, and then we distribute these elements. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your herald to proclaim good news, a message of peace between us and you, peace with ourselves and peace with one another. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you proclaimed peace heralded by dying on the cross in our place for our sins. And Lord, help us to celebrate. Help us to sit at the table with the promise knowing that one day sin will be no more sin will be completely destroyed help us to fulfill our vows as we walk in faith as we obey you and as we surrender and lord i I pray for those who are dealing and are under the enslavement of sin who are being oppressed by their guilt and their shame and their condemnation, that they would stop self-justifying, that they would stop making excuses and find refuge in you where you've set them free. Lord, may we not give up in our fight against sin. May we not try harder, but may we look to you as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we're reminded of the peace that you have bought through the bloody cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. As our ushers are coming to distribute these elements, man, use this time. Like like meditate and reflect on how the Lord has set you free. The guilt and the shame that you used to deal with, and he's delivered you from that. Or maybe even for some of you are actively now dealing with that guilt and that shame. Think about how Jesus took it upon himself. Where well, he dealt with it once and for all. So that's something you don't have to carry anymore. That he has set you free from the penalty of sin. There's there's no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has set you free from the power of sin. Sin has no longer any hold over you. You can say no to it. And even then, look to the future. Can you imagine a day where there will be no presence, no hint, no whisper, no effect of sin whatsoever? This is what we look forward to. This is what we hold out so that when we eat and drink, it is reminding us of a future that is coming. And then the only thing we can say is, come, Lord Jesus, come and make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have come to set us free, that you've delivered us from our enemy called sin. You've paid our penalty. You've set us free from the power. And Lord, we're looking forward for you to come back and to destroy sin once and for all. The very presence of it, where there will be not a hint nor a whisper of it. And Lord, as your people, who you identify with, who you have redeemed, you've commanded us to rejoice. You've commanded us to celebrate. To walk in faith. Can you help us? Can you help us in our moments of despair and discouragement to look to you? Can you help us to never give up in our fight against sin? Can you help us to not look to ourselves and try harder and better, but look to you and in faith surrender, knowing you are our Redeemer and we belong to you? thank you for the cross, Lord Jesus. Help us to never forget. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and worship our King.